Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the lessons of Ferguson. So, Richard, the last couple of weeks, the news has been dominated by this story out of Ferguson, Missouri. Just the basics. I think everybody knows it pretty well at this point. But you had a, a young, unarmed black man shot to death by a white police officer. And beyond that, other than subsequently, we learned that that young man was involved in a robbery shortly beforehand, but doesn't really tell us anything about the shooting itself and the propriety there. So we don't know much about the actual case itself, certainly not enough to form a reasoned judgment. So let's you and I talk about some of the after effects, some of the things that we've seen emerge in the story since the actual shooting, one of which has been a concern voiced by many people who, like yourself, define themselves as, as libertarians, a concern about the militarization of police forces in Ferguson. To what extent do you share that concern that this looks maybe more like a military force than a police force? Okay, well, first, I think it is important to link it back to the original event. There was no military presence at the time that the shooting of Michael Brown took place. And it's quite true that we know nothing about it. Uh, what's so tragic about it is the police know something about it, but they don't seem to have released any of the information. This, I think, has a huge amount of importance with respect to the subsequent material because the moment the police are silent, the community is going to think that they're stonewalling. And the moment they think they're stonewalling, they think that the police have something to hide. And the thing, of course, that they have to hide is the protection of their one of their own members against charges of serious incompetence. What this does, in effect, is it then raises the ante on the public side, and then the police have to figure out how to respond. And, and the term remilitarization of the police forces is very evocative, uh, but it's not completely misplaced. Uh, just coming up to my home uh, in New York City today at uh, slightly after about 4.30, I get out of the Columbus Street Station or Columbus Circle Station and there are four policemen dressed in what looks to be riot gear with Kelvar helmets and carrying not only sidearms but semi-automatic weapons and behind them is another guy who's carrying a dog in him, not carrying it but leading a dog, which was obviously designed to test for something. And I have to say, you know, it looked slightly ominous and I was just puzzled, not angered, puzzled as to why it's going on. But when you get to Ferguson, everybody knows why they're wearing those kinds of garments. And the question is, does this give a message that, you know, we can deal firmly with you, and so what you have to do is to acquiesce? Or does it give a message, you guys are just trying to overbear so much, that what we really are going to do is to increase the level of resistance? And I have to say, I don't think it's the military stuff or non-military stuff as such that has done it. It has been what I regard as boggling incompetence on the part of public administrators in the way in which they've released information, spoken to the crowds, tried to deal with this entire situation. So that they now operate under a, basically a presumption of distrust. There's no confidence in the public which means that there's going to be a lot more dissatisfaction. It is ironic that when hears the term outside agitators all the time being used in this case, and the last time one heard it in great you know, commonality was in the South when there were all the race riots after Brown v. Board of Education or the abuse by the police. Um, I don't know whether it's true or false, but I do think that there's certainly a golden opportunity for people who want to steal to come into a community and to do so 
um, under the shield of this kind of protest. I also think it's a serious problem because when you're wearing riot gear, one thing to remember is you may think that 99% of the people in that crowd are perfectly benevolent, but if there's 1% that has weapons that can kill you, your every bit is dead. So what you have to do is you have to dress not for the median person you see out there, but for the person who's most lethal. And that makes it a much more difficult kind of calculation. So what I would like to hear is a reasoned discussion of how these alternatives started to take place to form some kind of judgment. Uh, I don't think the folks at Ferguson are going to give us the kinds of answers that would inform the national debate on this topic. What about when it comes to the scrutiny of the police, uh, specifically with the the factor that you mentioned, the lack of information that's been released, what do you make of the calls that have emerged from some libertarian circles but a lot of – political circles, the idea that we should be requiring police to have dashboard cameras, to have portable cameras that they're carrying around on their person so that you have a sort of running documentary evidence of these kind of encounters between law enforcement and, and citizens. What do you make of that argument? Well, I'm actually very sympathetic to it, and I don't think it's a distinctively libertarian argument. In fact, one right. of the things that's kind of puzzling to me is why it is that libertarians are thought to have a unique set of insights on the proper techniques for the maintenance of public order when virtually everybody of every political persuasion shares exactly the same kinds of concerns and has to make the same kinds of trade-offs. Uh, but there are some early returns on this stuff, and they're all highly favorable. What happens is the number of incidents goes down sharply by as much as 60%, and the number of reports that goes down go down by about 90%. And let me see if I can explain why I think this is the case. I have no doubt that there's the occasional road cop out there, but I think if you were to take the random interaction between a police officer on the one hand and somebody who stopped for a traffic violation or for behaving improperly in the middle of the street, most of the time the police are going to be in the right. And so if in fact they are in the correct, then you've got the camera running not only after the interaction begins, but running before it begins. It basically validates the police story more times than not. And once that story is validated, what it does is it has two effects. One is afterwards there are going to be fewer complaints because there's reputation on it. And more importantly, since the camera's on both these guys, there's going to be less violent conduct in response to what the police have done. The key feature in this turns out to be that what you do is you have this thing running a continuous feed. So it's always on. But what happens is you junk the stuff after it's been around for, say, 60 or 30 seconds. But once there's an incident so that the switch is as it were thrown by the officer, then the previous 30 seconds or the previous minute is kept on record. So it's not like the Rodney King situation where the passerby video comes when he's headlong charging the police officer and you have no idea what provoked it, and so everybody is free to speculate. And generally speaking, in circumstances of high uncertainty, the ability to find cheap and impartial means to create certainty has to be regarded as an unalloyed goods. There may be certain kinds of tactical differences that you have to worry about. You can't ask undercover agents, for example, to be carrying these conspicuous cameras, I think, but they may be able to carry concealed cameras, which might be nearly as effective. But on balance, I think that that's a proposal that everybody ought to strongly endorse. Speaking about impartiality, here in a very different context, can you walk us through the legal side of this, particularly the the federal legal side because you have Attorney General Holder who has gotten involved in this case. There's a parallel federal investigation. They've ordered a federal autopsy. He has gone to Ferguson and interacted with Brown's family. What is the 
what's the legal standard? What's the authority by which the federal government gets involved in a case like this, which to all appearances is local? And how has Attorney General Holder conducted himself uh, as relates to that standard? Well, I mean, this is basically harkens back to some of the difficulties that one had with the Trayvon Martin case. There what you did is you had a state prosecution of the – George Zimmerman, who was a kind of an informal officer, and he was acquitted, I think, uh, supported amply by the evidence in his favor. Uh, the federal government comes in and says, look, there's no double jeopardy if two separate jurisdictions in back investigate the same incident. And then they look at it to see not whether or not there had been a shooting, but whether or not it had been racially motivated so it would count as a civil rights investigation. In this case, they're kind of inverting the order, is they're bringing the federal investigation in at the front before the state one is concluded, even though the states have much broader grounds on which they could prosecute Officer Wilson, I guess is his name, um, if in fact he has done something wrong. Uh, so there's nothing as such which is wrongful about running the parallel investigations, but I think that the Attorney General has seriously misbehaved in this case. Um, this is a very serious set of allegations that you're making against the officer, charging him with federal violations. Um, it is certainly the case that Brown was unarmed, but if one recalls the robbery with which he is now associated was a strong-arm robbery, which means that there were no weapons involved. It's also the case he was six foot four inches tall and 292 pounds and there is at least an allegation that he charged the officer and tried to jam him back into the car well if you know that there's an uncertainty you cannot in my judgment align yourself with the family and make it appear so the attorney general is now looking for evidence to get the civil rights violation that's not his job he's a law enforcement person he should be sworn to impartiality and he should in effect now go and try to figure out what it is that happened where my own priors are uh, that it is probably the case that, given what we know about Officer Wilson, he did not behave in any way that might merit criminal punishment, even if he did not behave in the way which would be regarded as optimal. To put it in contrast, suppose this case had been one in which you had a white attorney general who goes into Ferguson and decides to visit the officer and explain to him how it is we are conducting, wink, wink, a civil rights investigation when we really think that you're a fine gentleman. I would regard that as outrageous behavior. I think, in effect, that the attorney general does not understand and has not acted upon what I regard as a critical distinction. Those cases where, in fact, he's a public advocate, he can state his political views in whichever way he wants, but in those cases in which he's conducting a particular investigation of a particular person, he has to guarantee complete levels of impartiality. And one of the things that this will do, I am quite sure, is that they decide to prosecute them. Um, Wilson, there's going to be all sorts of preliminary motions designed to show that the federal government did not act with a neutral hand in this particular case and that this should be the grounds on which the prosecution should be scuttled. So I think it's just yet another set of calamities in the way in which this thing has been done. I can't think of anybody who has covered himself with glory in the way in which this case has been handled to date. I just want to clarify for a moment, Richard, for our audience. So the, the federal jurisdiction comes – for a case like this comes exclusively from the possibility of there being a civil rights component. Yes, Is that correct? Yes, and, and, there's and, no general jurisdiction uh, to deal with homicide offenses even by officers. And, and what has to be done to establish 
the fact of it being a civil rights case. Is it, is it sufficient that it was white on black violence or would there have to be a motivation shown that gets you into civil rights territory? It clearly has to be the latter, some degree of motivation. And one of the reasons why it's very difficult to establish that in this particular case, as best we can tell, it was a chance encounter. Officer Wilson was engaged in right. taking somebody to a hospital or something. It wasn't a situation where he was stalking somebody or had previous interactions with the particular person. There was no prior contact of any sort. What he did is he heard, I guess, a bulletin that there had been a strong-arm robbery nearby, and then he sees this fellow wandering. I guess there were two of them in the middle of the street, and he wants to stop them. Uh, so if you're trying to find animus, you're going to have to explain why it is that it was illegitimate for somebody to respond to an officer's call uh, from the central dispatch officer that this thing be investigated. I think, in effect, it's a very weak case, unless there's something about this man's background that we simply do not know. Uh, the accounts of him described him as rather mild-mannered. Uh, there's no history of any kind of civil rights violations or disciplinary difficulty that he has. All of this stuff becomes completely relevant um, in the particular case. So I think, in effect, it's not going to happen. And recall, there was even greater pressure in the Trayvon Martin case to do exactly this, and the government remained dead silent. It has not brought that case. And my view is it's because the earlier investigation at the state level clearly touched on the motivation issue and came up with nothing, and that Holder was smart enough not to bring a case that would reopen a wound and, in effect, uh, give Zimmerman a chance to acquit himself the second time. And the other thing one has to worry about is the Brown family is certainly within their rights to bring a wrongful death action against an officer. There is, again, a somewhat higher standard if you're suing a policeman than it is if you're suing some ordinary civilian, given the inherent right that officers have to use arms and so forth. But if they do that, again, they open themselves up to the risk that he will testify in a way that would be so persuasive that it will undermine their particular case. So my view about this is, in the end, I don't think that there will be um, any kind of prosecution. I don't think so, because unlike the Zimmerman case, you do not have these previous interactions going on between the parties one way or another. You have a real police officer who had collateral missions in which he was undertaking, and he had at least some justification for coming forward. But as I said, you never want to make a final judgment on these cases until somebody does do these sort of investigations. But what you do can do is form a set of intelligent priors based upon the public account, and then think that psychologically the burden is upon those people who think that there ought to be either a state criminal prosecution of the officer or, on more difficult grounds, a federal one. Final question that I'll ask you, Richard. You mentioned that name Trayvon Martin, a name that we had sort of forgotten about even though that case wasn't that long ago. It sort of disappeared until it came back up with this one. In both of these cases, you've seen this sort of racial tension boiling over, which is to say nothing of all the other racial issues we've had in recent years, whether it was voting rights or issues with black-on-black -black crime in, in urban areas. There was a conceit widely held, held by a lot of Republicans in fact that with the election of Barack Obama, we would be crossing a threshold that would be substantively different than any th we had experienced in American history towards greater racial comedy, I suppose. Um, when you look at what's happened in the years since then, it doesn't seem to have lived up to that standard, but is that because we just put too much in the way of expectations on the president's shoulders alone where this is concerned? Or does he actually have a, a contributory role here? 
No, look, I, my view about the president is he's not particularly adroit in the way in which he purports to handle uh, these kinds of various matters. And um, I think, in effect, he speaks too quickly and he forgets that in an investigation you have to be impartial. It was wrong of him in the Trayvon Martin case to say right out of the box before anything was known that if I had a son, I would like him to be like Trayvon Martin because that means, in effect, he's no longer credible to people who disagree with him and he's thought to be high hostage to an interest group. And what he has to do is to say, look, you can't judge it. Uh, I will just say by way of anecdote, I was happened to be that night on the Charlie Rose show, the only time ever, talking about the Obamacare Commerce Clause case. And this came up at the end of it. And you heard some very strong defenses of, you know, Martin uh, by people like uh, Jeff Tubin and Walter Dellinger. And I'm going there saying, look, I, you know, I'm just a law professor. I don't know all the facts, but I can assure you, it's amazing how complicated um, a self-defense case can be and you just don't want to prejudge it by speaking too soon and it's exactly what happened the accounts that eventually came out did not square with an easy case and my guess is my guess is that that's not likely to happen here but if you wish to preserve your impartiality you cannot go in as a black president defending black interests, you have to go in as a black president who says, look, I understand that there have been all sorts of biases the other way. I'm not going to repeat the same mistake in the opposite direction. And I don't think that he has done that. And in fact, in general, when you start looking at the way in which the government has gone on civil rights stuff, my view is on the voting rights cases, the employment discrimination cases, and so forth, they really have overstepped the boundaries and have pushed much too hard on theories that I regard as enormously controversial under these circumstances. Uh, the secret in doing this is to remember when you're on a bully pulpit, at which point you can say what you please, and when you're actually doing serious police or investigative business, where you have to be behave in a different fashion. And the president is just not very astute. And in fact, one of the things that he should have been doing was speaking to all Americans, trying to get people to calm down rather than essentially stoking the fire. And I think he made a serious mistake in judgment by taking a man like Al Sharpton, he of Tawana Brawley fame, which was a real sort of public disgrace and a complete fraud as one eventually discovered, and making him as a kind of informal missionary. There's just too much divisive effect in the Reverend Sharpton, and you don't want to have him as the sort of implicit uh, voice of the administration. So I think that you go from top to bottom, there is nobody in this particular case who has covered himself with the kind of distinction that we would hope to have. And it's kind of sad to see that as we get a case which is completely manageable, we have this kind of a situation. And there's also another thing I think which is terribly upsetting. You know, I've still remember being a boy and hearing Mr. Greenberg tell us what had happened in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 when I was a sixth grade student in New York City. And, you know, racial relations by and large have gotten infinitely better since that time. And they've gotten much better even in a place like Ferguson, apart from this one incident which has thrown everything off the map. The danger of having these kinds of divisive speeches is it overlooks the progress that has been made, thank heaven. And it also tends to set things back a little bit by creating suspicion of the lack of impartiality by everybody involved in this case. So this is the kind of incident which I think we will come to regret looking forward. Um, we will come to regret it all the way on all the sides. I can't think of anybody whose conduct I would care to praise in this particular case. A sad commentary indeed.
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.